Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of Adventures in DevOps. I am your host for the day, Jonathan Hall, and today I have with me Will Button. What's going on? Hi, Will. Howdy. Will, I hope you can answer a question for me today, and I hope I can turn this into a whole episode. (laughs) My question, if you dare to take it on, is what is Pulumi and why should I care? Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. I, as of recently, am super stoked that you asked because I had heard about Pulumi. It feels like a couple years ago and wasn't a fan in the beginning. I think when I first heard about it, they only had like JavaScript support. And and I think we both share similar opinions on JavaScript's place in the back end and in the, the role of DevOps. And so I was immediately turned off by that. And then recently started playing with Amazon's CDK, which was the same thing. You know, it's it's another JavaScript tool that has some significant obstacles to overcome and Then I wandered into the world of Pulumi and was just completely blown away with what they're doing in a positive manner. So I guess starting at a high level, Pulumi is another DevOps tool for configuring your infrastructure as code. But I think what makes Pulumi different and, 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 you know, when you go down that path, you're like, ah, oh, man, we've already got Ansible and Terraform and Chef and Puppet and, and so on. So why do we need another DevOps tool? And I think the thing that makes Pulumi different in my mind is all of the other tools are external to the development process. You know, we've talked a, a few times on this podcast that DevOps really shouldn't be a role, that it's how you do things, not who does things. And so in implementing DevOps, developers will work in the application code of, of their choice, whether that's uh, Node.js or Go or Python. But then whenever it comes to time, comes time to do the DevOps thing, they have to switch over to another tool, whether that's Ansible or Terraform or, or whatever they're using. And I think that's, I think we've done a great job of making that happen. And I think the next step of that is to bring that set of features to the place where the developers already are. And I think that's where Pulumi excels. They've got 
They've got libraries for TypeScript, i.e. JavaScript, and they also have libraries for Go, Python, and C Sharp. And so the cool thing about it to me is working within, let's say I'm a Node.js developer, working within my Node.js application, I can define what the production runtime of my application should look like using TypeScript. So if I need it to, if it's a, a React application and I'm going to host it on an S3 bucket, I can define that right in the same application or right in the same repository where the application code itself lives using the exact same language that I presumably already know because I'm building the application in that language. And so that to me is super cool because it brings the ownership and the ability of doing the DevOps thing to the person we ultimately want to be responsible for it in the environment where they already are. Okay. So I, I'm starting to get a sense for what Pulumi is. So you, you talked about Ansible and Chef. Is Pulumi replacing the, and, and, and Terraform? Is it replacing those tools or <laughs> like, like completely replacing them? Yeah. I think from the most part, it completely replaces them. You know, there'll probably still be like applications that you don't, you don't bring into that environment for whatever reasons, you know, if you have like standalone EC2 instances that perform some specific task, you know, you'll probably still manage those with Ansible or whatever. But, and then that's another thing that Pulumi, I feel like has done really well. Although this is going to really sound like this podcast is sponsored by Pulumi. It's actually not. Uh, they've got migration tools. So if you've already got your infrastructure defined in Ansible or Terraform, you can import that in and they'll convert it to the the native libraries for that type of application. So it sounds like basically Pulumi takes the same functionality that Chef and Ansible and, and Terraform provide, but makes it more accessible to developers. Yeah, exactly. It puts it into a context that they're more likely to understand. So if I'm a Go developer and I want to use Pulumi, am I writing my infrastructure as code as Go, or am I writing a YAML file, or what am I what am I writing? You are writing it as Go. Well, actually, I'm going to double check that because I I've been playing I've only been playing with it for a couple of weeks but uh, and I've been playing with the TypeScript version because that's what I uh, that's the application I was working on so, currently so it may or may not actually support go is that is that the point well they've got a library for go I know that for a fact and and I think so you're writing native go code. I just want to double check that while we're, we're talking here, because that's the part that turned me off about Amazon's CDK is they were like, yeah, you can use it with any anything. But then when you go look at it for a Go application, you're still writing JavaScript inside of a Go application. And to me, that was that was a, a turn off. Yeah. So Pulumi supports writing your infrastructure as code using the Go language. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So. I'm a, I mean, that sounds a little bit awkward to me. And I, and I say this having used a, a tool called Mage. I don't know if you're familiar with Mage. No. It's it's a Go clone of Ruby's sort of make thing. Okay. Rage. Rage. So I call it Mage. And so it, it basically, it, it's kind of a, a replacement for Make. It's a build tool. A replacement for Make or for Bash Script to manage your building. And it and I don't know. To me, it feels really unnatural to do that in Go. And it, it Go is fairly verbose, and, and that's good for certain things. But when it comes to like running a Go build, you know, you have to put a lot of code around that to to build your command and execute it, and so on. Even with helper functions, mm -hmm. it's really verbose to execute shell commands from Go. So it just feels like an unnatural fit to me. 
I'm, I'm my so my immediate concern with Palumi here is that it might be an unnatural fit, and it sounds like you haven't written Palumi in Go yet. But can you imagine what it's like? Is my concern warranted, or or, or do they make it feel good? <laughs> I know for like you know I haven't done the Go part. I've just done the JavaScript, but the JavaScript part I can speak to personally. It feels really good. It feels nice to declare a function that creates an, an S3 bucket or a, a Route 53 DNS entry. And it, it's done, it, it feels very natural to me for, for the context of the language. So what's the life cycle of this? So, so I've written some infrastructure as code to build my S3 bucket and deploy, I suppose, some EC2 instances or whatever. Where does that code get executed? And, and what's that life cycle look like? So there's a couple of ways you can run. There's a, a Pulumi command that you can install and type Pulumi up and it will uh, deploy to your environment or, you know, the way it, it preferable way that it works is you commit that to your repo, which kicks off your CICD process and the CICD executes your build and then runs the Pulumi up command for that environment and deploys the infrastructure out to your, your hosting solution, whether that's AWS or GCP or whatever. And, how does it handle, uh, like I know with Terraform, if you try to delete something, it'll ask you to confirm un- unless you give it a force flag or something. How does that ha- happen? What, what if I accidentally delete an S3 bucket or don't create it or whatever? Well, how does it handle that situation? Yeah, same thing. There's a, there's a confirmation switch you can supply to it, but it also logs out in the console output the changes that it's making. So if you're, if you're doing it locally from your workstation, it'll show you everything that it's going to delete, everything that it's going to add, and you confirm. And if you're doing it via CICD, it logs that out to, out to the console. But then also, because it's in the same code repo as your application, hopefully you've done a pull request and someone looks at that pull request, sees the diff of the file, and they'll see in that diff that you deleted one resource and added another resource and can do like a little sanity check right there by looking at the code. So which languages does Pulumi support? I mean, I know I can look it up, but since this is a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) They support TypeScript, Go, Python, and C Sharp currently. Okay. So it's not, so no Java, no Ruby. So it's still kind of limited, but those are some popular languages. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. And it sounds like they're adding support for additional languages. And, and if I'm not mistaken, when they first released JavaScript was the only thing that they supported, which is why I didn't pursue it. And, and what kinds of infrastructure can you control with Pulumi then? You can control, they've got quite the list. AWS, Azure, GCP, Kubernetes. All of those are supported, and then they use the native libraries for those. So, like when they are building something for AWS for you, they're using the, you know, the net standard AWS SDKs to do that. And this is where I think it gets really, really interesting because you can declare that in your code. So let me let me take a step back here. One of the things that you want to do when you're implementing or trying to push DevOps to be part of your development cycle is you want to give the developers an experience where they can do the things they need to, but also put in guardrails so that they don't do something that they didn't intend to do, right? And I think that's one of the things where Pulumi has a really cool model for doing that because it is all code. It means we can abstract things away and expose them as libraries or modules. So let's say that 
you and I want to give our developers the ability to deploy whatever microservice they build to AWS, but we want to make sure that they're running in Fargate with certain constraints. So we can take all of that functionality and put that into a library or a module or a function and then build that in AWS the way that we want it to run. And then they just import that module into their code, supply whatever parameters they need to, and they're building it within the within the parameters that we've set up to keep them safe. And then if you take a look at that long term and we decide that we're going to switch from AWS to GCP, we can modify that library that everyone's using. And then on their next commit, they're going to get all of those changes. Everyone who's using that gets those changes automatically. So I see that uh, it also yeah, you mentioned Kubernetes, and I see that in the list here. Does that mean that Pulumi would replace Helm, or would you use it along with Helm charts? What, what, what level? Yeah, what at what level does it integrate with Kubernetes? Yeah, so my thought process on that is for applications that I build and own myself, I would probably build using build and deploy using Pulumi. But then there's some things that are just kind of standard across the industry, things like building a, a Postgres database or a RabbitMQ cluster or things like that. I would probably just use Helm, the existing Helm charts from the community for those. Mm-hmm. So so you would use Pulumi more for, for custom stuff? So, so you've written your microservice or something? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And again, the reason I would lean towards that is because you can certainly do that with Helm. But doing it with Helm requires that you get your development team up to speed and familiar with creating and maintaining Helm charts because I don't want to do that. I would rather have them do that. And I think the the barrier to entry is lower if I can give them a tool that's using the language that they already know how to use. At a startup I worked at a few years ago, we, we used Helm for each microservice and we put the Helm chart in the same repo as the code. So at least they were together in that sense. Right. But like you said, it's still, there's a bit of a learning curve because you have to, I'm curious though how much that learning curve is different because the the hard part isn't the YAML file. I mean, YAML is annoying, but that wasn't the hard part. (laughs) The the hard part is knowing which, which configuration options to change and what, what flags to, you know, if you want to run three instances, instances instead of two, you have to know what to change. And you would still need to know that level of detail with Pulumi, I imagine. So how does it simplify that? The way I see it working whenever I'm I'm going to implement it is I'm going to abstract a lot of that away. Like for most of my microservices written by the teams that I support, they there's very few things that they want to control. You know, like for a production application, there's all there's a minimum of three instances of it in different availability zones. So I'm just going to bake that into the library, the module that they can they consume, and then they can override that if they want. But if they don't do anything, it's going to go with that. And then the other thing that I think is relevant to them is auto scaling. And when do they auto scale, and what metric do they auto scale on? Which I think can be just pulled in as parameters and using a, a strongly typed language or at least a, a firmly typed language, you can show them that those parameters are there and which ones are mandatory and which ones are optional. All right. Cool. So you went from zero Pulumi to e- even disliking it Yeah. three weeks ago to being a big fanboy now less than three weeks later. Yeah, I'm getting the knuckle tattoo later this week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
how are you going to do that? Isn't it six letters? Do you have an extra finger on one hand, or how, how are you doing that? Yeah, I was a nuclear engineer in the Navy, so that right. that obstacle is solved. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your, your the learning curve. What, what did it take to, to get started? How did you get started? And yeah, let's just go there. Yeah, so I their their docs were actually surprisingly good. They've got a number of tutorials, and you can follow the path of, you know, like here's basic Pulumi, uh, here's how it works on your desktop. So they've got a great tutorial for just getting it up and running locally and explaining some of the key concepts there. And then from there, there's a bunch of tutorials and a whole repo of example code for whatever environment you're working on in the different providers, whether it's AWS, GCP, or Azure. And then within those, are you using TypeScript or Go or Python? And so there's a bunch of example code that you can use. So for my learning process was go through their day one, hello world type examples. And then I looked at a couple of example repos for an application that I'm working on and then use that as inspiration to deploy this application that I'm working on currently using Pulumi. And it was, it was relatively straightforward. And then there's, uh, I had to contact support a couple of times via email on the, on the free plan. I'm not paying for anything. That's probably something we should talk about. There is a paid and non-paid version, but um, their support answered within a couple hours and was super responsive for what turned out to be a really dumb question. <laughs> That's the best kind. Yeah. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance. I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. So yeah, let's talk about that, about, about uh, paid versus non-paid. Uh, so my, I was going to ask, is it open source? And I guess that's related. I see there's a, a GitHub link on their front page. So what, what does that look like? Yeah, so there, it is completely open source. And um, I actually stumbled across a, a post on Reddit from the CEO where he talked about this because they caught some negative feedback over their business model. And, you know, we've, we've talked in the past about how hard it is to make a business successful on open source. And that was one of the things he wanted to do. So when you just install and run Pulumi, you create an account on their website and they do all of the state management within that account. And then each resource that Pulumi is monitoring for you is uh, consumes a credit and you get a certain amount of credits for free and then you pay for additional credits beyond that. The key thing there is that the state management, whenever you run Pulumi up, it goes out to their site, looks at the last documented state, looks at your cloud provider, compares the difference and says, here's what we're actually going to change based on the current state of everything. And so all of that's part of the Pulumi service, but they have 
self-hosted, you know, because it is open source. So you can download it and run it locally from the GitHub repo if you want a completely isolated or self-contained solution. All right. Good. So I'm looking at their pricing page here. The free, the always free plan is for one member. I guess that means you can't use it for your team, right? Right. Yeah. For solo projects or just to test it out. Yeah. And their pricing is, they, they did a great job of modeling AWS in their pricing because you look at it and you go, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> yeah. I see it 0. 0.00075 cents for dollars, but that's even confusing. So it's 0.075 cents per credit. Yeah. So, and then what's a credit? And, and there's an FAQ about that, which I haven't read yet. So yeah, the, the pricing is a little bit confusing. Yeah, because each credit is, I think it's, you can monitor one resource per hour per credit. And then a resource is something like an AC, uh, an S3 bucket, a S3 bucket or a DNS entry or a load balancer. That is a strange pricing model. Yeah. I like that, but oh, okay. <laughs> I guess if the price is low enough, it doesn't matter that much. I mean, yeah, I, my, my thought is I create an S3 bucket once and then it sits there for 10 years and I'm paying for every hour that you're, quote, managing it for me. That seems a little bit funny, but. but yeah. I, yeah. Especially uh, hourly. Yeah. So I don't know. So are, are you using the free plan right now or are you using one of the paid tiers? Right now I'm on the free plan. Okay. I haven't ventured into the, uh, the billing area yet. Will you be doing that? I will. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If, have um, any idea what it's going to cost you? I have no idea. <laughs> so it's going to be a little bit of trial and error. You know, I'm still, I still feel like I'm in the learning stage of this, but happily moving forward. And if that continues, I'll roll this out to some of the teams I work with, which will put us into the paid category. And then I'll probably sit down and try to forecast what that billing looks like and then review the monthly bills as they come in and see how close or far off I was. So if my math is correct, using the example I just I just made up of I created S3 bucket and it sits there for years and, and I'm paid I'm charged per hour to use that. Uh, my calculations say that's about six and a half dollars per year. So that's not actually that bad. I mean you could make the argument that I should pay zero since you're doing nothing. Right. But even so, six and a half dollars that's not gonna break the bank. I mean I guess if you have a hundred S3 buckets maybe maybe you start to care, but it doesn't seem outrageous, at least. Yeah, I think where it's really going to start becoming mindful is whenever you've got a a Fargate container or a container in a Fargate service with a load balancer and DNS entries and a CloudFront CDN in front of that. You know, those are all different resources. So now you got to add all of those up. And then for each plan, they've got the free tier. So you got to figure out, okay, how much of this just gets wiped from the bill because it's within the free tier. And if a DNS entry counts as a resource, then that could add it pretty quickly. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to try to say something ridiculous so that Pulumi comes on as a guest to correct me. <laughs> 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 We'd love to have you on, Pulumi, if you want to come on and talk to us about this. Yeah, so, I mean, if you have a website and you have a, you're going to have I mean, easily dozens of DNS entries just for a simple website. So I don't know that using the calculation I just did, suppose you have two dozen entries, that's 150 bucks a year just to manage your DNS, which should be free, in my opinion. You know, I, I pay GoDaddy nothing for DNS management. So the, the fact that I'm now doing it in my Pulumi seems, that seems a little bit crazy. So I hope I made a mistake in that and I hope Pulumi comes on to correct me. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, the, 
the alternative there is like, oh, well, it's DNS. It's not going to change. We could just set it up outside of Pulumi. But to me, I don't like that approach. Like my whole thing that has me excited about this is that it's all in one place. There's no other place to go. There's no websites to log into, no buttons to click. Exactly. And if anything changes, it's gone through our Git workflow process. And so there was a pull request that showed it and we got full auditing of it. And you don't want to get in a situation where certain resources that are cheap to manage are done in Pulumi and everything else is done in the harder way. Yeah. That's just a, that's the wrong, that's the wrong decision or the wrong reason to make those decisions, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That would, to me, in my mind, that would be a step backwards. Yeah. So I'm really curious to hear how this goes when you start using the paid plan, what you start doing with it and what what the cost breakdown looks like. Because I, I could see this, if my understanding, my naive understanding of this pricing, if I'm understanding correctly, I probably wouldn't use this for that reason only. Or at least I wouldn't use it for very much. And, and like we just said, then you start to wonder, why am I using it at all? I, I'd, I'd rather use it for everything or nothing. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> exactly. So what are the other, aside from pricing, let's, let's move beyond that now from a technical standpoint. You already talked about a few cases where you wouldn't use Pulumi. You talked about a Helm chart for something industry standard. When would it not, or also if, you, if you're using Java or Ruby or something or PHP that's not supported by one of the, by, by the languages supported, what are reasons you might choose to not use Pulumi? I think anything, anything that wasn't like developer driven application related, I probably wouldn't use it for. I think its primary use case, in my opinion, is we've got a software development team building this application and they're responsible for it. So I want to give them all the tools to own it end to end. But there's, there's some stuff, you know, like if we have a Splunk installation for our logging and alerting, I, I wouldn't even begin to think about trying to squeeze this into it. Mm-hmm. Or some common uh, common infrastructure things like we have a common Elasticsearch service shared by multiple teams. I don't think I would I would do that either. So it makes sense really when you're when you're writing the code that you want to manage uh, as opposed to some third party service, whether it's standard or not, some third party service. Yeah. Then you probably do it one way. Okay. How does Pulumi handle dependencies? Like, like suppose that your service needs Postgres. Does Pulumi have any way of d- detecting whether Postgres is running? And or maybe you have three microservices that depend on each other, depend on versions of each other. Does it have any way to, to manage that? Say, oh, you can't upgrade yet. That other service is still using the old version. How does it handle that thing? Yeah, they've. I've read um, some uh, some info on their site about how they do that, and haven't explored it fully yet, but. There is a concept of dependencies, a lot like in cloud, make sure I use the right cloud word here, cloud formation. You you can have a cloud formation stack that exposes a certain uh, resource, and you can refer to that cloud formation stack from other cloud formation stacks. They have a very similar concept, so you can define dependencies between them and either define that as a dependency on another Pulumi resource or you can use their config to just define it as a a static asset like a static database url or something like that good what else should i ask about i was just thinking if we do get someone from Pulumi on here and they have listened to the podcast it'll be interesting to get their feedback on my interpretation of it like am i close or are they going to be like Dude, were you even on our website? (laughs) (laughs) 
check your browser history because we're calling bull right here. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was the other Pulumi we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> the parallel universe. <laughs> Turns out spelling does count. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Adventures in Dev. Oops. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you piqued my interest. Honestly, for, for my for my own sake, the the only sort of concern is the pricing thing. Uh, yeah, so I'll have to dig into that a little bit more to see if it is something that that I would want to use. But it it sounds like a aside from that, that technically it sounds like an interesting project. I I still have a little bit of a doubt about infrastructure as code in Go, but mm-hmm. I didn't see it before I could make a decision to see if, if I like that approach or not. Yeah, I've got a new API I'm going to be working on here in the next, uh, probably in the next month that's going to be in Go. So I'll have some firsthand experience here shortly on that as well. Cool. If you uh, ever make a YouTube video about that, I'd love to watch it. You know, it turns out I do have a YouTube channel. Hashtag shameless self-promotion <laughs> <laughs> on DevOps. It's called DevOps for Developers. And uh, I've got this project I'm going to be picking up. And one of the things I'm considering doing is just building the whole project publicly and putting it out as YouTube videos. Yeah, I, I plan to do the same on my new YouTube channel. Hashtag shameless self-plug. My, my YouTube channel is called Boldly Go. It's going to be specifically Go-related, or it is specifically Go-related. But I'm going to do the same. I, I, I like the idea of just sort of live coding. I'll, I'll edit out the boring bits, but right. uh, sort of live coding for video. Yeah. Once my studio uh, is is finished being remodeled, that's my next project. Cool. Yeah, one other, two other things on here. I haven't explored either of them yet. Um, testing, which I thought was pretty cool, because testing is hard with infrastructure as code. They've got a whole section dedicated to that. And then crosswalk for AWS and crosswalk for Kubernetes, which I hadn't heard of either of those. But supposedly those are tools that inspect your infrastructure's code and make recommendations to keep you from doing things that you might inadvertently do or might not realize that you're going to regret if you do. Okay. That reminds me, I, I, I did have another question. Can I use Pulumi to manage my Kubernetes cluster. That, that is, I'm, I'm running on Google Cloud or, or Amazon and I want to control my GKE or EKS cluster from Pulumi. Is that possible? Or, and would I even want to? They've got, I've seen, I've seen the stuff for EKS in there. I haven't explored it fully, but yeah, it looks like you can launch a complete EKS cluster from within Pulumi. But to me, that feels like one of those areas where I'm not sure I would want to go down, you know, the, Naive approach to that would just be, yeah, we'll launch an EKS cluster for every every application. But to me, that just feels like something that you're going to regret in the near future doing. You know, if you've got 30 microservices and now you've got 30 EKS clusters, I don't think that would make me happy. Right, right. And then that and that related to another question I had. Based on my limited experience, Terraform. I think I think one of the biggest problems with Terraform is the bootstrapping problem. Like, what? How do you bootstrap? Like, if you want to bootstrap a, a Kubernetes cluster in Terraform, that's easy. But if you want to manage the same Kubernetes cluster in, in the same Terraform instance, that's not so easy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, does Pulumi have that same level of problem? Uh, although it sounds like maybe it doesn't matter if you if you wouldn't actually advise managing your, your EKS cluster from Pulumi. But if you were going to, what would that look like? Uh, so you, you've, con- you've thrown up your EKS cluster with Pulumi, and now you want to deploy something to that with Pulumi. Is that a problem? Or does the programmatic programmatic nature make it easier to work around those sort of things? 
My initial assumption is it's going to be a little easier to work around that because Pulumi itself is external to the cluster. So you build the cluster, like assuming that you did build the cluster with Pulumi, you build it and then export the resource details that are going to be the dependencies of the applications that run on that cluster. Mm-hmm. So it would be two separate things. You've got a Pulumi code base that's managing the cluster and it exports the the values that your other applications running on Kubernetes are going to import as dependencies, I think. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I don't know. Is there anything else I should ask about or that you should tell me about Pulumi? I think, yeah, just the last thing to kind of like close my sales pitch here from this not endorsed by Pulumi podcast, custom resources are the thing that's really got me excited, you know, because I want to make sure that all of my development teams can go and completely own their environment, but put in guardrails so that they don't venture off course and either deploy something insecurely or spin up $50,000 worth of cloud charges because they didn't, things didn't work out like they thought they were going to and they don't actually have access or check the AWS billing page. And I think that's one of the things that has me most excited about this is you create those components in Pulumi that your development teams use. And so then, like whenever I'm the guy on call and there's an alert, it doesn't really matter which application just alerted I know exactly how it's running in production because it's running just like all the others. And then whenever we make a change to that, we make a change back to that common shared underlying component. And on the next deploy, that change goes out to every every application we own that's using that. I just thought of another question to ask, actually. If the Pulumi code lives in each microservice in a, in a microservice architecture. How do those microservices discover each other? I mean, do you, do you have to keep like names in sync or, or can you use these different Pulumi configurations somehow cross communicate these variable names? Like, and I'm, I'm thinking of Terraform, for example, where I can create a service and I give it a, a variable name and I can refer to that in other parts of my, my Terraform config. But if, if my Terraform config were separated into multiple instances, that wouldn't work. Uh, so I'm curious if that same limitation exists in Pulumi or if it has some clever way to, to, to solve that. Yeah, I haven't really dug into that. It seems to be that they've got that problem solved. And my assumption is that that's an artifact of using their their paid service is like all of that will be in the same account. So all of your running applications in Pulumi can discover each other because they're all they all have this shared repository of knowledge. Uh, but the, one of the ways I've approached that in the past, though, and it's something that I do currently in Kubernetes is just a standardized naming structure. And that's where that's where the DNS entries come back into play. Like any application should be able to discover another or consume another application just by knowing the name of that application and that the DNS name is going to follow a consistent pattern. So it's like GitHub repo name dot my microservices website dot com. But then the downside would be, suppose I split two mi- one microservice into two, then I need to go tweak that in every other microservice that references that one. Yeah. There's not some sort of magical variable that will propagate. Right. Fair enough. I mean, that's kind of what I would expect, but I thought maybe, maybe these smart people figured out some magic that would solve that problem. <laughs> 
They and if they did, I hope they come on and tell us about it. Right? Yeah, it could be there. There's a there's a ton of documentation that I I haven't made it to yet. So could be something waiting to be discovered in there. Well, I learned a lot about Pulumi. I hope everyone listening did too. I hope I didn't completely steer everyone off track because, like I mentioned, I've only been working with it for a couple of weeks. So I hope I didn't say something well, you know, that I, was I blatantly it's, wrong. It's nice. It's nice often to get the perspective of a of a quote newbie on on some new technology. Because you get to, you get it through fresh eyes. You know, if we had somebody who'd been using it for for years, uh, or somebody who worked there, we, we we would learn a lot. But it would be a very different perspective. So I appreciate the perspective of somebody who's new to something as well. Absolutely, I I agree with you a hundred percent. There, I talk with a lot of people just getting started in their career, and that's something that they struggle with. Like, oh, I don't know enough to talk about this subject. I'm like, that's exactly the point. You're seeing it through a lens that you will never, ever see this through again. And if you don't write it down right now, when you come back to it, you no longer have that perspective. And that's exactly that's immensely valuable for everyone else who's coming at it as a beginner, too. And on that note, we are looking for guests. If you have learned a new technology and would like to come talk to us about it, and you only have two weeks' experience, we'd still love to hear from you. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Do you have any picks today for us, Will? As a matter of fact, I do. By the time this podcast comes out, we are going to be, I think, early May. So my pick is the Murph Challenge, completely not DevOps related. The Murph Challenge is an annual challenge on Memorial Day weekend, which is the last Monday in May here in the U.S. The Murph Challenge is a, a nonprofit foundation named after Lieutenant Michael P. Murphy who was the leader of Operation Red Wings. And if you've seen the movie or read the book Lone Survivor, it's that guy from that operation. Uh, He was killed in action in Afghanistan. And so this is a fundraiser for a nonprofit started by his parents after he lost his life that raises money every year for children who lost parents that were killed in action. And it covers helps them to cover their education expenses so just to make it a little easier for them to get over what they've been through and make sure they get a good education. So anyway, Memorial Day weekend is their big fundraiser, and they do so by sponsoring the Murph Challenge, which has a workout component to it. And the workout, I'll start by saying this. You don't have to do the workout. You can donate and not do the workout. But the workout is actually a lot of fun because you'll meet a lot of people and you just do what you can. The workout itself is run a mile, do 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 bodyweight squats, and then run another mile with a 20-pound weight vest. But, you know, you obviously scale that. It'll be fun. (laughs) Okay, maybe my definition of fun is a little different than the the normal average person. But to me, yeah, that is... That is a lot of fun, you know, because you get together with a group of people and you do it and everybody grinds it out and you raise money for this and the money goes to a great cause to help some kids who have been through a traumatic event, but trying to do 
whatever can be done to help them get through that and uh, eliminate any additional burdens as much as possible. So my pick for the week is the Murph Challenge. Go check it out at themurfchallenge.com. And how's that spelled? I can imagine a few different ways. It is T-H-E-M-U-R-P-H challenge C-H-A-L-L-E-N-G-E. Dang, putting me on the spot making me spell. <laughs> well, the, 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 <laughs> it was a test. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, the Mur- Murph was the part. I was imagining, is it P-H or, or F? Yeah. Or- yeah, Murph with a yeah. P-H. M-U-R-P-H. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Well, I, I didn't come prepared with a pick, but I, I thought of one. It's corny, it, especially after that one. That one's, that one's pretty, pretty cool and kind of serious. But, you know, I have a, I have a kid. He's a almost a year and a half now. And we watch a lot of YouTube with him, children's music. And when I was in the United States just a couple months ago, I, my friends and family, when, whenever they were over listening to us listen to music, they go, are you listening to Coco Melon? Oh, I hate Coco Melon. That is so obnoxious. Coco Melon is annoying. We listen to the much better YouTube channel called Lulu Kids. So we have small children in the house. <laughs> Lulu Kids is nice. And actually, maybe the best part about Lulu Kids is they have an app you can download. It's it's I think it's $3 a month. But then you have the videos on your phone and you can lock the screen so you can give your phone to your kid and they can't like switch to different apps and check your email for you. Oh, wow. And it was it was amazing on the on a transatlantic flight to have that app so he could listen to music without Wi-Fi and without without checking my email. So Lulu Kids on YouTube or the Lulu Kids app. That's my pick for the week. I'll try to have something better for next time. (laughs) I don't know. I I think that one will be actually quite valuable for some of our listeners because a lot of them. Yeah. And so we're talking about spelling. It's L-O-O-L-O-O. It's not L-U-L-U. Um, so L-O-O-L-O-O. I'm glad you pointed that out because I, yeah. I mean, I don't have young kids anymore, but I would have. You, you still it. might enjoy it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It'll become my. In many languages, we're raising a bilingual son. So he listens to both the English and Spanish versions and they have it in many different languages. If you're, if, if English isn't your first language, still check it out. They probably have whatever language you speak. Cool. <laughs> Right on. Well, I guess until next time, thanks for listening and have a great week. Yep, so long. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.